This is Party on the Peninsulas, your weekly update on the people and policies leading Michigan, with Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes. Welcome to Party on the Peninsulas, your weekly report from the Michigan Democratic Party. I'm Lavora Barnes, and the word this week, contrasts. Last week, eight Republican presidential candidates staged their first campaign debate just hours before the leading candidate was booked for the fourth time in four months for a series of felonies. Those two events contrast sharply with what we as Democrats offer the state and the nation. The GOP primary debate highlighted the extremism inside the Republican Party, with each candidate showing just how out of touch they are with the real needs of Americans by pushing conspiracy theories and culture wars over actual plans. Instead of following them down the rabbit hole, Michigan Democrats are prepared for a fall legislative session, which is sure to be chock full of more initiatives to uplift the middle class and put money back in the pockets of Michigan families. And the booking of Donald Trump for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election? Republicans have long claimed to be the party of law and order, but six of the eight candidates on that debate stage said they would support a convicted criminal to lead our nation. The two who didn't are booed by Republican audiences and poll in single digits. Trump is using his mugshot as a fundraising tool, apparently proud to be the only former U.S. president charged with being a criminal, a total of 91 felony counts spread over four indictments. No matter how chaotic the GOP becomes, Michigan Democrats are focused on building a brighter future for our state every week, every month, and every year. Make no mistake, the MDP doesn't take days off from working to deliver for Michiganders. On this week's podcast, we'll talk with one of the leaders working on that promise. State Representative Kara Hope chairs the House Committee on Criminal Justice, where she's focused on issues like voter rights, openness in government, and juvenile justice. Also on the podcast this week, a special bonus. This week marks the 60th anniversary of the historic March on Washington, remembered forever because of Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Dr. King's lawyer, Clarence Jones. He wrote the first draft of that speech and was standing just a few feet away from Dr. King as he used his voice to motivate a generation of Americans to work for a more just future. But first, an update on some of the other stories on politics and policies we're following this week with MDP's Dorian Tyus. I'm Dorian Tyus. Here are some of the stories on politics and policy we're following this week. In the aftermath of the first Republican presidential debate, new data for progress polling finds that a majority of independent voters don't like what they heard on multiple issues. 67% of independents oppose shutting down the Department of Education. 58% of independents oppose sending U.S. military forces into Mexico to fight drug cartels. 54% of independents oppose breaking up the teachers' unions. 53% of independents oppose pardoning Trump for any criminal charges against him. In comparison, Voters support many of President Biden's policies that were attacked on the debate stage by Republican candidates. 77% support expanding the production of clean energy in America. 76% support expanding Medicaid and Medicare to more Americans. 75% support raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. 
and 72% support addressing climate change. Federal court judge Jane Beckering has upheld the dismissal of one case and granted dismissal in two other cases challenging Elliot Larson civil rights protections based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Three religious groups filed lawsuits alleging the law's sexual orientation and gender identity protections violate their constitutional religious freedoms. The court held in each case that these entities did not establish standing to maintain their lawsuits where the law already requires consideration of religious freedoms and there is no imminent threat that the law will be enforced against them. The ultra-conservative Board of Commissioners in Ottawa County has told the county health department to cut its budget in half. Writing on the department's Facebook page, embattled health officer Adeline Hambly said such cuts are ridiculous and warned they would significantly impair and likely eliminate health services and will almost certainly close the health department within weeks of its implementation adding that county leaders are attempting to achieve political victory over COVID-19 at the expense of Ottawa County citizens. President Joe Biden has launched a promotional blitz for his new program that helps student loan borrowers repay their debt. Just weeks before millions of Americans are set to receive a loan bill for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. The Biden administration is mobilizing to convince borrowers across the country to sign up for the new income-driven repayment program, dubbed the SAVE plan, which caps interest accrual and lowers the monthly payment amount for many borrowers. The Michigan Board of State Canvassers on Monday approved another recall petition against a state lawmaker and rejected five other petitions due to a lack of clarity. The board voted 3-0 to approve a recall petition against Representative Sharon McDonald, a Democrat from Troy, that cited her yes vote in support of red flag gun laws signed earlier this year. Those laws allow family members, law enforcement officials, and others to request an extreme risk protection order prohibiting an individual from accessing firearms if they present a danger to themselves or others. Five additional recall petitions filed against first-term Democrats were rejected on a 2-1 vote, citing a lack of clarity. Attorney Mark Brewer, who represents the House Democrats facing recall, said the board did the right thing in rejecting the petitions, but said he would appeal the board's decision to approve the petition to recall McDonald because the language was not clear or factual. South Carolina's Supreme Court has upheld a new law banning most abortions after roughly six weeks, a move that could once again shake up the nation's abortion landscape in the Southeast. The 4-1 decision is a reversal from January when the court issued a 3-2 decision finding a similar law violated the right to privacy in the state constitution. That opinion was written by the state's sole female justice, who has since retired because of the court's age limits. The legislature replaced her with a male justice, making South Carolina the only state in the nation to have an all-male state Supreme Court. Three men accused of aiding a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer 
were anarchists who considered themselves the new founding fathers and were preparing for bloodshed, a prosecutor told jurors Wednesday. In his opening statement, Assistant Attorney General William Rolston told jurors the defendants didn't like the U.S. government, they didn't like the state government, all desired to start a civil war, if you can believe it. For the average person, said Rolston, it's almost impossible to fathom how brazen, how bold, and how dangerous these individuals were. A newly published article in Mother Jones entitled, quote, Radicals Took Over the Michigan GOP, Now They Can't Stop Losing, end quote, is providing new national exposure to the turmoil in the state party. The article concludes that while Karamo and her supporters fixate on election integrity and culture war issues like transgender rights, convinced that it will lead to future victories, ousted moderates look on the schadenfreude. This battleground state fissure is a gift to President Joe Biden's reelection campaign and Democrats' efforts to hold an open Senate seat that is essential to maintaining control of the chamber. Links to this and other articles of interest are on our website, partyonthepeninsula.com. For Michigan Democratic Party headquarters in Lansing, I'm Dorian Tyus. Thank you, Dorian. The fall legislative session begins just after Labor Day. With a record number of successes already enacted by the legislature, lawmakers are looking to add to that record. One of the leaders in that effort is State Representative Kara Hope of Holt, Chair of the House Committee on Criminal Justice and Vice Chair of the House Ethics and Oversight Committee. She talked with our Walt Sorg. We are delighted to be joined by State Representative Kara Hope, Chair of the House Criminal Justice Committee. She represents South Lansing and Point South, and is from Holt, Michigan. Representative Hope, thank you for being with us on the podcast today. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. You accomplished quite a bit during the first half of this year through your committee, a lot of it in conjunction with the Elections Committee. We see what's going on right now in Atlanta, and we don't need to rehash that. But you took a lot of steps to make sure that Michigan continues to have the cleanest and most accurate elections around, and also to stop some of the intimidation that we saw in Georgia and some of the other places. What are the highlights of what you've already been able to accomplish? So we've already been able to accomplish getting bills passed that basically enact proposal two. I'm working on election safety, and that's going to come up in the fall again. But we were some back and forth, and I feel like we have a good product now, so we can take that up in committee when we get back is my hope. You expanded drop boxes and also made absentee drop voting boxes. a lot easier as well. That's because right. everybody's going to, everybody who votes absentee will get a postage free envelope to send it back. That's right. And once you're on the clerk's list, you're on forever to receive an AB ballot application and a ballot. Another area where you started work, but you're, it's still in process, is on juvenile justice. There are a lot of things that I know you're trying to change. What are some of the most significant that you're going to be working on this fall? We have a 20 bill package, and we did start hearing those before the summer break, but we didn't get through everything, unfortunately. It's a pretty comprehensive change to Michigan's juvenile justice system. It's going to put us um, ahead of the pack, so to speak. We have resources are always a big thing when you're talking about counties that have to provide the juvenile justice where, the, where they're actually providing the care. 
So we have a lot more resources. We're eliminating fines and fees for young people and their families. Currently, sometimes they can be charged for their stay at the detention center or whatever it is. It, not surprisingly, those fees typically aren't paid anyway because the kid or his family doesn't have the means. So we're getting rid of that. We're expanding the requirement for counsel to juvenile court proceedings and appellate proceedings for juveniles. So that's new. A lot in there bears on diversion. So we're trying to keep kids out of the system. If they're in the system, get them through as fast as we can. Of course, making sure that they're rehabilitated and they gain the skills they need to succeed. What do you see as the priorities for the set that's coming up? You've got kind of a short window because of the realities of the elections for mayors, which may strip Democrats temporarily of their majority in the House and could bring it down so it's a 54-54 tie. I would assume you're working on a lot of bills to move forward that have broad bipartisan support. What are some of the things that we can look to see in the fall session? Well, that's not my decision. Personally, I'm not. That's about my pay grade, but I wouldn't be surprised to see more things on the workers' rights front, some more things revising our workers' comp system and unemployment. I found it very ironic that for many years, it was illegal to bring a sign into the state capitol, but it was okay to bring in an AR-15. And that balance has been restored. You, in fact, are the sponsor of a bill give citizens the right to bring in some signage just to express their point of view. Well, that hasn't been passed yet, so I'm looking forward to getting a hearing on that and getting that passed. But yeah, what a strange world we live in when you can bring in an AR-15, but not a little placard that expresses your viewpoint. It's kind of strange to me, and I've said this before. I said this when I got into trouble with uh, Speaker Jeff, you know, it's strange how we kind of elevate one constitutional right over others. So in this case, the Second Amendment oh. or our First Amendment rights to express ourselves. Oh, in addition to allowing signs now, we're going to have security checkpoints in the Capitol and in the House Office Building, which are new, and that's under Speaker Tate's leadership. You attempted to have a weapons kept out of your own office uh, just because it made you and your staff uncomfortable. And under Republican leadership, you're actually threatened with penalties for trying to protect yourself and your staff. That's right. In 2019, I hadn't been on the job all that long, and it was our first uh, Second Amendment rally was coming up. Those are sort of notorious in the Lansing area. People know about them and anticipate them. I put a sign on my door that said, unless you're licensed law enforcement, please don't bring your firearm in here. And I gave an explanation and I listed all the other ways that folks can get in touch with me if they want to talk about guns or anything else. And yeah, the speaker, he wasn't a lawyer, but he determined that I was violating the Second Amendment and he made me take the sign down. The implication being that I would potentially lose my office, lose my staff if I persisted. I'd like to step back a little bit and not just talk about particular pieces of legislation, but the overall atmosphere in the House of Representatives. Democrats have a very narrow majority, 56-54. If somebody gets sick, it goes down. If somebody's on vacation or just cuts class, whatever, it can be very low. Yet the leadership, which you're a part of, has done an incredible job 
of keeping a very diverse caucus very cohesive. How has that happened? What, what have been the steps that have been taken to make sure that, in fact, progress can be made? I can't take any credit for our successes so far. I really have to take my head off to the speaker, and he's done a great job. He's sort of a quiet person, but he leads by strength, and he convinced us all, if, if we needed convincing, that the work we were doing will make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, he's led by quiet example. We've been cohesive. We've been moving in the same direction. It's been great so far. We've managed to get a lot done, like you said. And I hope we're going to return with the same energy. And as a result of the leadership that you and the others have shown, we've already seen a pretty tremendous record of accomplishment despite those very narrow majorities. And the fall session promises to be just as successful, uh, especially when you start getting into those bills where there's a lot more consensus. One of the reforms that the voters put into the Constitution were financial disclosures and more openness from state government. Do you see action coming on that this fall? I believe we're required under the language in the Constitution to have our procedures in place by a certain date. I believe it's the end of this calendar year. I could be wrong about that, but that will definitely be a priority when we get back to make sure that we have all that in place to get those disclosures, not just made by the legislature, but also available to the public to take a look and make sure that they're legislators on the up and up, that they're not unduly influenced by some moneyed interest. So that will definitely be a priority, I think, in elections. Another reform the voters approved by a pretty good margin were some reforms to the term limits. The old term limits where you had to step down after three terms. Former Representative Lynn Johndahl referred to it as mandatory inexperience in the legislature. You're in your third term. Normally, you would be termed out. You want to keep on doing this sort of thing? I'm running for re-election in 2024, and that's as far as I'm committing to. Not because I, I love my job, but life happened and all that. So I'm not committing beyond 2024, but I'm definitely running again. And you've only got a six-mile commute to the office. That's right. I'm Big lucky advantage. that way. Big advantage. Representative Kara Hope from Holt. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today. Thank you. Now, as promised, a look back in history. 14 years ago, Walt Sorg had the privilege of talking with Dr. Martin Luther King's trusted advisor, Clarence Jones. It was Jones who was tasked with writing the first draft of what became known as the I Have a Dream speech. As it turned out, only a portion of that draft was voiced by Dr. King. What happened after King moved away from the prepared marks made history and Clarence Jones was feet away from Dr. King as that history was being made. The night before, which was August 27, 1963, before the so-called March on Washington the following day, Dr. King and uh, several of his close advisors who were available and not immediately doing other things connecting with the march, we huddled with him in the corner of the Willard Hotel. The congressman, then Reverend, but subsequently the Congressman Delegate Walter Fauntroy, Bayard Rustin, part of the time, uh, Ralph Abernathy, uh, myself, uh, Wyatt T. Walker was in and out of the meeting, uh, Professor Lawrence Redding, a couple of others. And we talked about what Martin might consider saying the following day. Now, the previous month, he had spent almost three weeks living in my home in Riverdale in New York, my wife and family, to enable Dr. King and his Coretta 
and their kids to be in New York to be available to the organizers of the March on Washington, but also have somewhat of a vacation vacation setting. We uh, we vacated our home to let Dr. King and his family stay in our home for some three weeks. So during that three weeks in July, periodically we would talk about some ideas that perhaps he should consider when he was being asked to speak. But the bottom line is after having a lot of people giving him a lot of ideas and so forth, and he said, um, Clarence, are you taking notes? And I said, I will if you want me to. And I started taking notes of the various points and suggestions of things that people thought he should say. And then he at some point said, you know, Clarence, maybe you ought to go upstairs and try to summarize the notes and come back down and so we can, you know, sort of read them to everybody and everybody will be on the same page. He wanted us to all have the same base of information. So I went up upstairs to my room, maybe spent maybe 90 minutes, an hour and a half. I tried to summarize as accurately as I could what different people had said. And then I, as I had often done on other occasions, merely in the interest of just time, merely in the interest of effective organization, I drafted out a sample, suggested uh, six to seven opening paragraphs that he might consider using or would give him a basis upon which to develop the theme of his speech. I came back downstairs, and I read the summary on my notes to everybody, and I had no longer gotten into maybe 90 seconds or two minutes of reading the summary. People would start to say, yeah, but you left out this. Or, or you didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't give, you, you should have given more emphasis on to this point. You left that out, or you didn't give sufficient emphasis. The joys of working with a committee. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and Martin, Martin listened to that back and forth, and he finally, uh, somewhat, I think, a little bit of exasperation, and it was getting late. He says, "All right, I thank you. You know, I thank you so much. All of your advice and assistance. Now I'm going upstairs, and I'm going to counsel with my lord." But the next, I did, I was not focusing on the speech, except to the extent that after he had was mimeographed, that there was to be a proper notice on the mimeographed copies to protect his ownership of the speech. The next time I paid anything, any attention to it, is when he was giving it. I was standing, I don't know, 15 yards from him, and as he, as he commences the speech, and I listened to him, remembering the draft text which I had written, I said, oh my God. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. I said this to myself. I said he obviously liked it or didn't have time because he was just adopting. He was using the first seven paragraphs as, as a lead-in to the rest of his speech, and he, didn't, he, he hardly had changed the word. And then during the course of the speech, past the seven paragraphs that I had written, opening paragraphs. Uh, Mahalia Jackson, the legendary gospel singer, was sitting in front of him on a platform, and she turned to Dr. King, who was then still reading from a prepared written text, and she said, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And Martin smiled and acknowledged what she said, and at that point he turned the written text that he had at the podium, he turned, it up, he turned them upside down so that the text was face down. When I saw this from a distance, I said to whomever else, whoever was standing next to me, I said something like, you know, these people may not know it, but they're about ready to go to church today because I could sense that he was getting ready to, to his, going to, trans, to transit into a form of Baptist oratory. And, it, and he did. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident 
that all men are created equal. In current parlance, Dr. King could mentally cut and paste better than anybody I'd ever known. That is to say, while he was speaking, he could selectively take from his memory bank pieces of speeches or articles that he had written in the past and put them together and reconfigure them. And that's exactly what he did to Martin Washington. And because I had heard him speak about the dream in earlier speeches, but he reconfigured it in a way that was different, had not been done before. And, um, you know, he waxed very eloquently with his poetry and, and quoting of biblical texts and poems, and it was very, very powerful. That's amazing. The whole speech process started the day before. Technically, it started three weeks before he started thinking about it, but it really got serious the night before. That's correct. In the, in the corner of the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. Did you know, as you were listening to him speak, that this would stand out as perhaps the greatest speech of the 20th century? No, I did not. I wasn't so much, I was listening to him, but I was watching. I was looking at those 250 to 300,000 people who were assembled. I was reading their reaction. I was seeing their reaction to listening to what he said. And by the nature, and by what he said, I could see that it was just, just powerful. It was having a powerful impact. A little more than 45 years later, on the very same steps of the Lincoln Memorial, there was a musical concert commemorating uh, what was going to be the inauguration the following day of Barack Obama's president. What were your feelings when that concert was being held, especially at that venue, and all the work that you had done since you joined with Dr. King and became a part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference leadership and all that 45 years earlier? Those of us who are still blessed with longevity, and who had an opportunity to work closely with Dr. King. You know, we all in our own different ways, and I'm sure John Lewis, of course, was the generation behind as a, as a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But, you know, there were other ministers, there were other people who were around who had worked closely with Martin. And I think that it had a profound emotional, psychic consequence. It's, um, it's as if that a young person in the genre of a Martin Luther King Jr. had stepped forward to apply some of the concepts and the abiding faith and confidence in America, which Dr. King had, to his own political campaign. You know, to Dr. King, first and foremost, was a religious leader. He was a minister of the gospel. People think of him as a civil rights leader. But his faith and abiding belief in God was the fuel that ignited the engine of his moral leadership. Now, Barack Obama his faith and religion appears to be central to his political leadership, but they were very different people. There was no question uh, in my mind, and uh, and I think other those of, who traveled that journey with Martin King, as I did, that without the transformative effect of the struggle and leadership and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century in dismantling segregation and institutional racism, the election of Barack Obama would not have been possible at the time that it occurred. Quite frankly, uh, I, to the extent that I ever thought about it, I thought that possibly sometime in the indefinite future there might be an African-American president. But I certainly didn't think it would be in my lifetime. As you think back to the, the words of that speech, and especially at the end when he's talking about, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content, but by the of, content their char- of their character. I have a dream today. Well, think of the imagery. Think he was like... A, he was like an artist with a paintbrush. Think of the imagery that he is painting with words when he says, uh, one day the great-grand 
daughter's great-grandson, the slaveholders, will sit down at the table of brotherhood with the great-great-granddaughters and grandsons of slaves. Think about that, you know? That's, that's, that's powerful imagery. It's you know? difficult for most people, really, to sum up their life's work in the words of one speech, but in, in a lot of ways it really does sum up your life's work. Well, it, it does. Uh, uh, I, I, should, I should, and this is not being critical of what you're saying, but I, I'm trying to give some balance to what you're saying. Uh, actually, you know, there were two other seminal works, speeches that Martin King gave that I think really uh, had a profound uh, impact on the nation, and particularly some of the leadership in the nation. One was the uh, uh, earlier that, that year. He was in jail in Birmingham, and he wrote something that's been called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. It was an extraordinary uh, indictment, an extraordinary description of what segregation meant to him and what it was doing to America as it was doing to him. And then there was the speech on April 4th, 1967, one year to the date of his death, his speech opposing the war in Vietnam. Those are two powerful, powerful speeches. It was an amazing time. And what you and so few others really accomplished uh, with your works, without the, uh, the power of the government behind you in many cases, is truly amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I've uh, I recently wrote a book called What Would Martin Say? And you can your listeners can go to whatwoodmartinsay.com. Really appreciate your time, Mr. Jones. Uh, it's, it's been an honor to talk with you, and I uh, wish you all the best in your travels. Thank you so much. Thank you. Clarence B. Jones, attorney, counselor to Dr. Martin Luther King, and also a speechwriter who worked with Dr. King on perhaps the greatest speech of the 20th century, the I Have a Dream speech. I'm happy to report that Clarence Jones is still fighting the good fight at the age of 92. Just five years ago, Jones co-founded the University of San Francisco Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice to disseminate the teachings of King and Mahatma Gandhi. An interesting side note in his life, he's the stepfather of actor Richard Schiff, best known for his role as White House Communications Director Tobley Ziegler on The West Wing. That's our report for this week. One thing you can do to help spread the word of how Michigan Democrats are moving Michigan forward, share the podcast with like-minded friends and neighbors. I'm LaVora Barnes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week and hope you will be too. Party on the Peninsula is as a production of the Michigan Democratic Party.